2: There are a whole lot of manifestations of being the child of Holocaust survivors, which we can talk about. But I think it's what it's what actually has happened is that it's taken me probably fifty years to unshackle the 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 ramifications of being a child of people that were that were traumatized. <laughs>
0: I'm Michelle Laurie, and this is the Nitty Gritty Committee conversations about the guts and the glory of life. Rachel Berger is a very special person to me when I was a young comedian and I was sitting in a quiet corner somewhere at a big gig that I was doing and felt like I shouldn't be at. She came over and introduced herself to me. Can you believe that? What a beautiful woman. She is interesting for very, very many reasons. One of them is that she is the child of Holocaust survivors. She wrote a show about it called Hold the Pickle, which was hilarious and moving and fantastic. Uh, She's here to talk about that, among other things, before she moves to the country.
2: Who is moving to the country is the core of me not the person that was the child of Holocaust survivors. So it's not like I'm running away from it. I think that little Rachel, who wants to be in the country, was always there. But you only know uh, what you've been taught. And you can only repeat uh, until you you are emotionally adult enough what you have uh, been taught and what you've known. So I was taught fear. I was taught lack of trust. I was taught that betrayal is the most profoundly evil thing anybody can do. And when you have those things taught you, as do children you know, of uh, Vietnamese refugees, as do asylum seekers. I mean, I've worked with survivors and torture and trauma in Melbourne. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether they're Sudanese, or whatever country they're from, in their eyes, I see the same thing as I have. Because most people are born into a world where their parents love them, where there is a sense of security, where they feel that everything is good with the world. Why shouldn't it be? They're loved, they're nurtured, they're protected. Mm -hmm. When you're born into a situation or parents where their reality is that everything is in fact not good with the world, because they have seen their family shot in front of them. They have seen what hu- one human being can do to another. And in my case, my father had an arm blown off three days before the end of the war. And so I had an everyday reminder of what people can do to each other. So it, it, those things, they, they, they kind of affect you on different different layers Um And that's what I talked a lot about in Hold the Pickle. When I wrote Hold the Pickle, my one-woman show, it wasn't a Holocaust story. It was actually my parents' love story Mm. because in spite of everything they went through, the one thing that for me was most potent was they'd been married before the war. Had they not loved each other, they would not have survived because both of them in different situations were offered escape separately, but they didn't betray each other. Many people did because when your life is is at stake, you'll do whatever. Um, They didn't um and yet so it was for me the core of the story was two things one in this in this atmosphere of profound betrayal and survival you you are completely connected committed love will do anything for the person you love and the other as a child how i was affected uh, but there is no guilt in the show. There is no self-pity. There is no anger. In fact, two schools, Carey, came to say, not Jewish schools, Carry and another private school, I can't remember, and the, the questions were amazing, and, and in both cases, one kid asked me at the end of the show, why are you not angry? Why were your parents not angry? And they never were. They were happy to have survived, but... It's very rare for the child to speak. Usually when you see children of Holocaust survivors uh, talk about it, they will talk about the history, the experience, their parents. I wanted to give that little Rachel a voice. That I was really committed to her, but without any sense of self-pity, uh, without any sense of, poor me, you know, look what happened. she, because she's a very strong little girl Um And her strength and resilience come from those parents and what they went through. But I gave her a voice so that I was able to say, my father didn't talk to me for a year because I forgot to give him a telephone message. Because for him, betrayal was such a profound pain. To forget to give someone a message that you had escaped, to forget to give someone an address of where you could escape to if the Nazis, they were really important things. He was very damaged. Those people had post-traumatic stress disorder, but they were never treated. You know, you see the ex-Vietnam vets now have treated for PTSD, but in those days it wasn't it, it, it wasn't diagnosed. And yet I know both my parents had PTSD. It was obvious. They were obsessive, they were they were obsessive compulsive, they were paranoid, they didn't trust the you know, and I've developed a lot of those things. So all I could do was say to the audience, this happened. I didn't say isn't bad. I didn't say I suffered, I just said this happened, so that I left it with the audience. To to know these are the ramifications when people are broken, they will it will impact on on how the children in the house learn about life. So I learnt you don't you don't forget a message, you're always on time, you always do that because people's lives, it's irrational, but people's lives have been have relied on people being reliable and keeping to their word. So but I never, I never, I didn't even explain it. I just told the story. And if you leave it with people, they get it. But I I loved and still do, my mother's still alive, love my parents immeasurably. So there was none of the, oh, they screwed me up, they weren't any good, the blah, blah, blah. They are what they are. And I am what I am because of how they were. And like I said, I've talked to so many people, refugees here and asylum seekers that, you know, have have managed to get out of detention the same. doesn't matter where you're from, what age. It is something about seeing that the world can be very bad. However, it's also seeing that it can be indescribably good because all you need is one person to do one thing. And then you realise for all the bad, it doesn't matter. So my parents had that as well. They were indescribably generous. They understood that if people give you a place to live, something to eat, and care about you, that that is something to really count your blessings for, you know. So um, that was what the show was about, but it's taken me 28 years of performing to write that show,
0: mm.
2: you know, because – and it came out of stand-up. It came out after – happened after Tampa because I did a show in Comedy Festival whatever it was, I don't know, 2005, 2006 and whenever it was and spoke about Tampa, which just happened, because I was mortified by people saying, they didn't have any papers, And how can the people come here? And the thing is that my parents didn't have papers either. People who run away from a a place, they don't have papers. Because if you have papers, they can identify who you are and kill you. Or if somebody is raping your daughter, you're not going to say, oh, excuse me, where are my papers? I'd better get my papers. But then you just go. And so there was such a profound misunderstanding and a lack of knowledge of actually what happens when you run away. You know, there's a great... Whoopi Goldberg monologue that she did sometime in the 70s when she was doing a stage show before she really became a film actor and she her character is a kind of raster you know, guy who is on stage who is just basically trying to find dope and you know stealing from people, and he ends up stealing women's, you know, and he just doesn't care. All he cares about is his quaff, and he ends up stealing a handbag from a woman who has an airline ticket to Amsterdam. So he gets on the flight and goes to Amsterdam, and pretends he's her, even though he's a man. Gets to Amsterdam, and goes to the Anne Frank Museum, and it's the most astonishing monologue about like you know what what Anne Frank, what were you doing? You know, like, what were you thinking, babe, hiding in that room? You know, and it's this, but totally he gets it, you know, and it's the most, it's incredible because it's a complete, like, idiot savant going, is that what happened? Really? Shelley Berman, you so deserve that Academy Award for being in that film. Mm. You know, you know <laughs> what I mean? So that's what, that that's what I tried to do in the stand-up show. But then people went, no, we want to hear more of the story. Mm. So that's how it came about, you know, um, mm. uh, but um, I think it affects. So the so the going to the country is for me. Well, actually, going to raw bush is really about allowing who I really am to flourish, as opposed to who I was, kind of the person that was that was the product of these two parents, who has been diligent, who has been reliable, who has been disciplined, who has delivered, who's been on time, who has at every cost deliver it because that's what you needed to do that was the right thing to do then yeah. she's worn herself out and gone you know what 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 like who when do I start who, what, what do I want I actually made myself this thing called I bought an empty book and started and called it my happiness project and started thinking about what do I want because I'd never thought about I mean we, we all are like that yeah. we all are the products of our parents mm-hmm. but I think there's a point where you think okay what do I actually want and it's, it, and it's really about nature regardless of my background. It just really, it feeds me. It feeds me a great, on, on all levels. Mm. So, uh, and my father was the same. My father used to go on long drives to the country. So, I don't know if it's so much an escape. It's more a coming home to. I feel incredibly, incredibly blessed because six months ago, I didn't know this was going to happen. Really? It all came together. Once I started, once I started putting notes down of what I wanted, it just manifested. It was, in, I've all, look, you know, since I, I'm... That child of the seventies, mm-hmm. you know, I if somebody had said in nineteen seventy two, go up a mountain, shove a watermelon up your ass, you'll find God. <laughs> yeah. I would have done it, right? Primal therapy, rebirthing therapy, whatever, everything. Yep. everything. I did it. everything. Yep, <laughs> great source of material, but re- you know, I yeah. did everything. And you know, people talk about actually, you know, man, you know, thinking, visualizing, thinking, whatever. And I go, like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I visualize, okay, visualize. But this was actually putting energy into this thing. Putting energy into every morning, sitting down saying, okay, what, not, not about work because I'm a workaholic, yeah. not about a relationship, what in purest form makes me happy.
0: And it's about you because when I think of Rachel Berger, I think actually of your engagement with everything else. I think of you being really engaged in work, in, um, in travel, in other people, in yeah. talking. You're all about giving out, 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 out. That's right.
2: Yes, yeah, so That's this is not, fascinating. This is about giving in. This is about going in, which is very hard to do. Mm. And part of the giving out is also, I think, part of that um that sort of background of people who really my parents were incredibly generous because they were really helped. and so they always were incredibly generous and uh, in time, in effort, in everything. and um, I mean, it's one of the things that's, that's kind of really upsetting for me about the city. There's a gracelessness mm-hmm. in the city now, which I find, which I don't really want to see, and I'm sick of getting angry. The fact that I've been punched in the head in the years I've lived in Melbourne is remarkable. I've confronted so many people, yeah. attacked so many people, saying, you don't talk to her like that. Get away, get in the back of the queue. <laughs> <You know? Yep. laughs> because I can, because I don't have a problem raising my voice in a supermarket saying, how dare you push in in front of that old person. You know, yeah. But it's hard.
0: Because the, the St Kilda you grew up in was very much... Community. Yeah, and very much rooted in the war, wasn't it? In the well, realm. it
2: was rooted... What it was, there were only two places in Melbourne where you that were, first of all, that were open on a Sunday illegally. In both cases, the police were given buckshish to keep away in Carlton and in St Kilda, <laughs> right? Yeah. So that, they were those two areas. But also they were the only two places where Europeans could come, mm-hmm. basically, particularly in the 50s and 60s, to find who was still alive. I remember being a little girl and... and um, Uh, seeing more than once somebody walking past someone and then turning back and saying, Murray? Murray Finkelstein? Is that you? Murray? And they hadn't seen each other since the war. Wow. And these two people who didn't know whether they were alive or, or dead or whatever, and I'd see it again and again, and then there'd be this embrace that was, you know, all the, all the pain and everything they'd gone through would come out in this place and then they would find each other. So it was a place where people could could come, you know, to find each other, to eat. Because the other thing that often people forget is that when you come to a place and you've left everything that you know, your history, your your childhood memories, often a lot of belongings, your family, in war or not in war, but especially in war where you've had to escape. One of the things you look for when you get to the new place is the ingredients for food, mm-hmm. because when you smell your own ingredients, you feel that you are at home. So Carlton, uh, Ackland Street were places that people would go to to find cheesecake, you know, chopped liver, yeah. gefilter fish, rye bread, things that you could. And they weren't just Jews; they were Eastern European people. As Carlton had the Italians, and other areas had the Greeks. So um, that that was how I. That doesn't. It's not like that now. Mm. I'm sure there are places where there are communities of Africans and, and, and other communities where still it's very much about them creating a place. Yeah. And I love to go to those places. I love
0: it. And where there are little girls and little boys who are living in the shadow of their parents' huge stories. Totally. Because I've i been chatting. I've been at the, the Jewish Holocaust Centre a yep. bit lately and chatting yep. with some of the survivors there. And every this is why I thought I've got to talk to Berger because I knew you'd written the show we talked a little bit about it over the years, but suddenly I had this sense of what's it like to grow up when your parents have a story this huge, this overwhelming from the other side of the world, from an event that happened before you were born. It's everything to them. How can
2: you get out? It's different out- for everyone, but right. there are two There are two different... I mean, I mean, this happened because I've talked about it a lot, but I've also seen... When I, because I did the show, I started in two thousand eight, and then and the last time I've done it was at the Arts Centre at Fairfax at two thousand eleven. In each case, it was really humbling, because people would come with the numbers and sit in the front row, and you'd notice a number on their arm, and you mm. think, oh my god, they were there. I'm just telling the story, second hand. It's really, you know, it's kind of you carry this thing very gently, but and you would see people actually, you know, I remember there was many times there were, you know, people would come like a couple and they would be very elegant and very beautifully dressed and beautiful jewellery, and they'd sit in the front or the second row. And as I began to tell the story, you would see them, their faces would change. And it was interesting because I used to say that um, people would often ask me how I started doing stand-up or what made me. And it was because very, very, when I was very little, I, this was one of the ramifications, I guess, of their story. I'll go back to the two different kinds of yeah. ways it can impact. But... My parents were very scared, but I mean, they—they they did. They were—they were, in fact, they weren't scared. They were very courageous people, and they survived, and they loved each other, whatever. But, but nevertheless, they were the the remnants of you know anybody from the tax department was a Nazi. Anybody, you know, my father got a traffic infringement. They were Nazis, you know. They, they were, you know, and also when they came here, my father was disabled. There were no disability services, so mm. they, he was treated often very badly. Um, so, so every the world was a difficult place. The world was not a friendly place. It was always. A, a difficult place. And I was taught when you go to the bank, it will be hard. When you go to get your license, it will be hard. <laughs> there will be Nazis. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that was part one of the remnants. However, in all of this, when they laughed, there was a palpable difference in the air. It was visceral. So somehow I knew that laughter was good, mm. right? I didn't know why. I didn't know how it worked. But Was I it hard didn't... to make them laugh though? No, oh, wow. that's the thing. My they both have. My father's dead now, but my mother also had that great sense of humor. But the reason I'm telling you this is because not only was it visceral, not only did the, was it visceral this change in the air, but it was, as, it was, it was as if their their faces had been heat sealed for years, and then all of a sudden the laughter would would change it, <laughs> and that's what I saw in the audience that they would come and they'd be all like this, and then as I told the story particularly when I got into the really kind of the, you know, the in before the funny bit. There were funny bits, but they were, you know, apart. But I had to tell the fulcrum was really how my parents had hidden for thirteen months. And 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 I was like people's bodies would actually visibly change where they would be almost slumping on each other. Mm. And it, it it was and if you know it was like they would become almost wrinkled and it was really incredible to see how the telling of the story would take them back to some place where their actual physicality would change. And then in the end there would be laughter and they'd be okay and then it'd be a heavy bit and then they'd collapse again, you know. But it's a place that we can't get to. No, no, and nor can you as a child. But what happened generally, what I found, because I had a lot of Q&As, there were two things. Um, Some people would not tell their children. They would say they don't need to know it was awful. They don't, need. so that then the children would find out, or they would come to a show like mine, and then they would ask, and then they'd find out. But often their entire life, and I had, I did one Q and A, I think, at the Holocaust Center where, you know, this woman got up and actually she was so angry with her mother, why didn't you tell me? What you know, the mother had had a whole other family before the war, which is not uncommon. Entire families killed, husband, children, they get married again, make a new family, and there's a whole other family. So there were two different ways generally that I've seen. One is that parents didn't tell the story because they thought it was too awful and they didn't want an impact on the child. Mm-hmm. Or they spoke about it a lot, uh, if not a lot, at least told you the story. I mean, it took me a long time to find out exactly what happened to my father's and how he lost his arm. I knew as soon as I could see and as soon as I could understand. I remember about, I was about two and a half or three when I first said, what happened to your arm? And he said, get out of the room. Oh, he, Because he... What what was he going to say to me? So his response was an angry one. And, you know, that was one that was one of my first lessons. What have I done wrong? And I didn't know I did anything wrong. In asking? In asking. Anything? Correct. So he didn't ask anymore. It took a long time for me to find out. And then um, it, when I wrote Hold the Pickle, which was like in 2008, was the first time I actually recorded. My mother went up to Queensland and stayed with her. And, um got her to tell me the entire story of how they escaped, how they hid, how they found the place, how they stayed, how they how they fed, where they went to the toilet. And even in telling me she would talk for a while and then she'd have to lie down and then she'd get up and talk again. And if this is a woman who's, you know, at that stage, 85 or something, and um, they actually hid in a, in a cupboard under some stairs in the basement of a building. And the, um, the entry, the, the, you know, it was like a cupboard where you kept coals. So the door of it was about, you know, three foot by three foot or something. Mm. And so she just, I said, how did you get in? And she just got on the floor and crawled in as if she'd like you put your headphones on. She just knew. So then I copied that physicality when I did the show. But she did it like she'd done it. She never left that basement. She came out of the hole, but she never left the basement for 13 months. The
0: two of them together?
2: Yes, in that cubby hole. He would go out at night to try to find food and stuff. They'd come out of it during the day. But at night, they both hid. And then and then Nazis did come, and they did find them. And it's quite an amazing story. They didn't find them, but they knew they were there. But for some reason, well, I know the reason, but I don't want to give it away. But they, there was a, it's a whole story. Like my father had this vision of so, in, and So it took me till I was, you know, 50 to get the whole story. Because they never actually told me the whole story. I just knew they were in hiding. You know, they used to say, we hid in a cellar, we hid in a cellar. But they actually hid in the stairs. There were from street level there was seven steps going down in this building to a cellar mm. in down the bottom like a basement mm. and under those stairs was like this cubby hole where they kept coals and potatoes and anything that needed to be done and my father had prepared that space knowing that they may have to escape and hide and that's where they hid. So it took me until I was in my 50s to get the whole all the nuances and when you begin to hear the nuances I mean I have to say though I have the same conversations with you know African yeah, Cab drivers, how did you get here? What do you mean you jumped there? But how did that happen? What, but yeah. what about your family? It's just, it's so humbling. We, we lead such privileged lives, mm. you know, when you hear of you know, Sudanese boys walking through the desert, and, you know, and leaving their families and then getting here and then learning the language and whatever. You yeah. just think, you know, I, I know it. But it's happening. The tragedies, Michelle, it's happening now. Mm. There are more stories being made as we're speaking. And as a child
0: of someone with a story like that, does it compel you to create a huge story of your own or does it make you feel dwarfed by their story? That's what I wonder when I meet the old guys in, in Elston Week at the centre. I think, God, I might feel like I can't get out from under this incredible story of survival and coincidence and smarts and adventure even and all of that. I feel like
2: nothing I ever do could could live up to that? I think that that's a very good question. I think it would be unique to every individual.
0: Mm.
2: For me, I have um, I've always had a clear sense of, of death being a reality Yeah. because it was very much a reality for my parents. Because of that, I have a very rich value for life. And I also have a profound intolerance to injustice. Profound, Mm. you know. I can't. A lot of my stand up, um, you know. I remember one television producer saying to me, "You're just too much, too political, too too many. You know, big-tit, smart mouth, too political. You know, (laughs) it was all too much. You know, because I guess it was in the way that, uh, you know, you can make it funny." But I think sometimes, and it was funny when I did political satire, I and mean, when I still do because I can't keep my mouth shut. But I think any kind of injustice is really a button for me, and you have to tread a very fine line to to not be angry. And I don't think I was. But but you know, the, you know, there's still not a lot of room for potent, funny women on television. No. As regrettably in 2015. Um, And so, you know, I've always done it. Being on stage has been good because I've had no one hold me back. And I could say, but it's been certainly, if you were to look at my career over the 29 years now, you would see there was a lot of political comment that, you know, it was always funny, but it was social justice, political comment, the things I've worked with. You know, I worked with. um, the AIDS Council in Victoria when nobody wanted to, because to me that was just another group of people who were being isolated and ostracised for something people didn't understand. And, uh, And I've worked a lot in the disability area because I knew what it was like for dad to be disabled at a time when there were no services, so I grew up with a whole lot of men that had bits missing, and yet somehow they managed to pull their resources and say, "Well, you know, you can get a parking spot there." And I mean, my dad, when he came here, they had a they, they had a milk bar, but before that, he tried to get a, a, a cab license, and they wouldn't give him a cab license because they, he only had one arm, and he couldn't afford to get it. He had a prosthesis, but it wasn't very good, so he wanted to get a new one. He left the old one in Israel, and so he didn't have prosthesis. So they you know, they said to him, "Well, you know, it doesn't not comfortable for people if you they get into a car with the person with one arm, but you know, if you get a prosthesis." So you know, I used to say, so what's the illusion of an arm is safer? Yeah. You know, because that's all it is. You know, he's still got the one arm. Yeah. But it's the illusion of an arm to make you feel better about yeah. it. You know, so he had to go through all that. And he was very elegant. I mean, he always wore shirts with cufflinks. Mm. This is the man who had a prosthesis. And mm. you know, he was very elegant. And I think that's the other thing that, you know, I, 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 you know, I, we all whinge and we all feel sorry for ourselves and we all have times that are good and bad. But I have to say at my worst times, I can't, you know, I can't really feel sorry for myself. Yeah. I can't, you know, and I always say to people, and my mother still says at 92, you know, always remember there's someone that's suffering much more than you are. Yeah. That's really a remnant of, you know, of thinking I'm alive. Yeah. I'm alive. And often those survivors say that, you know. They How do. are you? I'm alive. You yeah. know, I'm eating. I'm <laughs> shitting. I'm walking. I'm alive. You know what well, I mean. Well, that's the overwhelming
0: vibe at the the Holocaust Centre. I noticed it was brilliant because I was saying to them, I feel like am I um am I taking advantage of you asking you to tell your story again, or am I am I hurting you? Does it hurt you to tell it again? They said, Listen, I'm alive, and I do it for all the people who aren't correct. And they really focus on that. On they do, they
2: do it for all the people alive, and also to remind people that. You must. You have to. You have to look after each other. You know, it is that thing. If you know, if if they come for Joe Blogs and you don't do anything about it, then what's going to happen when they come for you? Yeah. And that's also that survivor instinct. There is. I have a deep sense of needing to be involved, needing to be aware of the other. The thing that makes me want to stab people is when there's an us and them. Any us and them. Yeah. Black, white, gay, straight you know, Indigenous, you, whatever, you know, it's just the, the us and them is the beginning of genocide in any situation if you have us and them. And that is, I don't know when that happened. You know, that that's just been in there. For, I think from Trevor Marmalade, who I spoke to recently, we were talking about starting stand-up and I'd, he was one of the first people that I met and became friends with, And he said, you know, all the other, which is interesting, I never thought about it. He said all the other women had, you know, Wendy Harmer, Jean Kitson, Marianne Fay. Um, they all came from groups of women. They were like women groups, like they'd worked with someone else yeah. and then they went on their own. Marianne Faye worked with Wendy Hart. He said, you just got up there and started talking about the Prime Minister and we thought, who is this in a frock? <laughs> you know I, mean? I think part of what drove me to speak was clear. obviously I wanted to be funny, but I wanted...
1: Ready to pop the question?
2: to communicate certain things, and I, and, and I never thought they were about my background, but it became really apparent what drove my material, yeah. whether it was feminist issues, whether it was the way people were becoming elitist about food, you know, even in relationships it was about how we treat each other. It, you can't you, you, it, it, – it manifests in, in a myriad of ways, some of them not great. You know, I'm still very OCD. I still have issues with trust really deep issues with trust. It takes a long time for me to trust someone. It just does. It just does. And so I think, you know, it's like having brown hair. It's just who I am.
0: And as you were saying before, and I've become more and more aware of as you're talking, that
2: betrayals really break your heart. Well, you know, I think betrayal, yeah, I think betrayal of any kind is, you know, you can understand it and you can rationalise it, but it breaks your heart mm. it you know when you see a ch- look i've seen kids uh, just by happenstance being in a schoolyard waiting for mum to pick them up and all the other kids get picked up and the mum's late and something something that face that little face is is full of where is she have i been left it's not even fear it's a sense of i am not important oh. you know so it's that feeling betrayal is about somebody making a choice yeah that gives you some a non-important status. And every human being believes that they have a place in the world. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are. You, you have value mm-hmm. and you have a place, as important as the sky and the trees and the stuff. So betrayal is about, no, we made a choice and you know what? You're not that important.
0: That's always the most heartbreaking part of the stories for me from the Holocaust is people saying, my father thought this is not possible. I fought for Germany in World War One, or I've lived in this community my whole life. My grandparents lived here. It is not possible that what you're saying is happening and people saying to them, you have to leave, you have to be afraid. And I'm saying it's not possible. People can't do that to other people. That your parents understanding that on the deepest, deepest level that that is possible for people to really uh, take everything away from other people and treat them like they don't matter.
2: Look, my, I remember my mother, I I put her into a um a retirement village a few years back. And it was a difficult transition. Getting old is getting old and yeah. vulnerable for the Holocaust survivors is it's hard for anyone, but especially because for them weakness meant you were going to be sent to the gas chambers. Yeah. So, you know, I went through the process of her saying, you know, mom, it's not that you're weak, but you have to go because you could blow yourself up on the oven and you fall down the stairs. And, you know, I mean, she, <laughs> I was very tough with her. And at one point she said, you're such a bitch. And I said, you know what? I had a great teacher oh. because she was, <laughs> I bet. she was tough as. I she was a hard lady. She was very She hard. survived
0: the Holocaust.
2: She was tough. She's a tough and lady. She, but the thing is she wanted me to be tough. And yeah. It, you Know it was a bit too much, I didn't need to be that tough. You know, it's taken me a long time to go. I don't need that armor, really. Let me unshackle some of this armor. You know, you must have been thinking that you, if you I need to survive, it, correct? Yes. Absolutely, she we've you to talked have it. about it. Yeah. She said, if you ever, God forbid, it happens, you've got it right. So, I get it, but you know, you go, really? And also, I said to her, Why did you do this? Why did you do that? And, and her answer was so profoundly honest, she just said, I, you know, as a mother after the war, she said, you know, I did the best I could. And I think, well, that's the truth. She did the best she could. They all did the best they could, you know. But I said, anyway, so she went through the process of kind of, you know, leaving. And at one stage she said she was really angry and frightened. And she said, you know, I remember the Nazis coming in to my parents' house and in a minute everything was smashed, everything was gone. In a minute we had nothing. And that's how it was in a minute, like in the click of a finger, you know. Mm. So she said, I don't need this furniture. I don't need this stuff. I don't need, you know, that's her way. Everybody's different. Some people then like to have the best of everything. Mm. Like I said, everybody reacts to them. Some people like to, you know, they they create these homes and their children are, the, the, you know, everything is based on you know, giving their children everything and making them happy, You're not telling them, you know. Others, like my parents, are like, you will understand why, you know, we're not spending money on this, but we're doing that. And you will understand why it's really important to be generous. And if somebody comes to your home, you must give them food. And you will understand. And it, it was like a learning process, although not long before my father died, I remember him saying to me, don't be like me. Oh. And what he was meaning was, don't deny yourself any pleasure. You know, I said, well, it's too late now, yeah. I think, <laughs> you know, it's too late. Yeah, But I, I think there is a, I, well, the point you made up is, The point you just made about talking to the survivors and asking them is it hurting and they want to share the story is what I said at the beginning, that there is a great desire to tell the story because it is still happening now. Because it is the most profound reality when you think another human being, whatever, whatever their reason, whatever their politics, whatever thing. You know, I had really... Lovely Australian friend saying, but if these people come in illegally, then we lose jobs. They don't They don't have pay- They're using our Medicare. You think, where are your brains? These people have seen their families stabbed. They've run away. They need a place to come. They're not weak. Look at all the land we've got. Yeah. These are intelligent human beings that are saying this. Generous, good people.
0: And so, probably people who would deify Holocaust survivors. Correct. As we do in our culture. It's correct. been, it's gone. We've seen it in black and white. We've seen the movies. We understand how, unless you're a denier, of course, because right. some people think it—that's oh, bizarre, exactly. But most of us have seen the movies. We know who yeah. was the good guy and who was a bad guy, and we can't. Yeah. A lot of people can't equate that to anything that's happening in our own time. Can Regrettably, they?
2: yeah. Regrettably, because it's happening every day, every minute. It's happening when yeah. you see. I mean, when I did the stand-up show prior to doing, um, per, uh, uh, prior to doing Hold the Pickle, um, you know, I started off by talking about seeing the face of a little girl behind barbed wire in a detention centre mm. behind the cyclone fencing and I said, that's me. That's me. I see in her face. Even though I wasn't there, it's me because that face for her, her life is never going to be the same.
0: I remember you telling a joke once and sort of the punchline, it was about your mum um, it was about how hard she is, about how tough this woman is, and it was something about
2: she stepped over dead bodies, dead bodies to escape. You know, I do something. She said, "You want me to care?" I walked over dead bodies. You know, wow. so then some <laughs> That's what I get. My father would say to me, uh, "Really, you feel sorry for yourself? You got two arms. What do you got to complain about?" You know, this is what they would say. You got two arms. <laughs> don't talk to me about you didn't get a good mark at school. I don't care. And my parents weren't actually, my parents' story is quite remarkable. They actually weren't in a concentration camp. My father was saved by a German officer who was in the army before the war. He was a professional soldier, he wasn't a Nazi. Wow. And he, my father was an electrician, and so. He was pulled off the street to be taken to a ghetto, and they found fa- and they said they found out he was an electrician, so he was given a job in the building in the town hall, which was the building that the German army had taken over as their headquarters. And this man, his name was Schlotfeld, gave him quite a lot of freedom. So he was able to bring food to my mother who was already in the ghetto with his two sisters and other people. So my father, not regularly, but, you know, at a designated time once a week, he could get in and out of the ghetto. And Because what they did, they, the ghetto was, they virtually took over, let's say they would take over Richmond. What city was this in? Poland, in a city called Vuv, which is now okay. in Ukraine. uh uh-huh. Um, but they, they virtually just closed off. They would say, okay, we're going to take yeah. Victoria Street, Richmond, and from Burnley Street to Coppen and another square, we're going to close it off. That's going to be the Jews go. With it. That's what they did. So yeah. it was an area of the city. That, and they just put barbed wire around it and they put gates in and they put offices they in. They oftentimes
0: didn't... let trams still go through there, didn't they? But yeah. they just,
2: like, would, would paint out the windows and stuff so yeah, you couldn't and see Yeah, and put gates. Jews. So there were sentries at yeah. the guard and, and you couldn't get in. So my father would be able to get in and, you know, bring... Was it and, and at the beginning, you know, everything was normal. At the beginning, people still traded and they brought whatever they did and they had their little businesses and, and then, then food ran out and then people got typhoid and then they started dying and then people started, as my mother said, people disappeared. They would just disappear and we knew that they were going to the concentration camps. Every day oh. their truck would come and they had a quota and whatever the quota was, they would take that quota. So it was fifty people, a hundred people, but people disappeared, and then you knew. So my my father knew this was now. We had to get her out, and so he he orchestrated that they would go to work. So my mother went on a truck with a whole lot of other women, and they would go to a, a, a like a big warehouse, uh, taken by two German soldiers. And in the warehouse, they had to sort all the clothes, which nobody ever said where they came from, who they belonged to, but they were used clothes. Mm. And so they would sort them women's, men's, children's shoes. In fact, on stage, I have a pile of shoes. And for a lot of Holocaust survivors, that image, they just stare at it and it's, you can yeah. see their memory coming back. But it's a very powerful pile of shoes. But she'd sort... So she was sorting the shoes. And so they had organised that on one of these trips On when they were waiting to queue up to get into the truck, my father would somehow be waiting, grab her. They would run through the streets because they knew that town. It was their town. And they would go back to a room which Schlotfeld had given him in the attic of the building. And Schlotfeld knew my mother was there, but he never said anything. So they were very good people. They were very good people that saved. And after the war... There were several people that Schlotfeld had saved and they were all in Israel. So my father, along with other people, brought him to Israel to visit all the people he'd saved. And then it was only then they found out that his own family had been killed when the British bombed Berlin. There are stories like that everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. Wow. Um... And there's thousands of them. That this man, while he was saving all these people, his own family were towards the end of the war were, were totally killed. You know, so you know that my parents told me that story very early on because that was a story of triumph. They didn't tell me the really bad bits, the the the, the, in, the intricacies of how they fled and how they hid and where my aunts died and those sort of things. I've had to ask my mother. My father died quite a long time ago. He died in nineteen eighty four. Um, but in the years since, I've spent a lot of time with my mother. And it's been wonderful. It's been wo- It's been not wonderful. It's a stupid word. It's been a gift mm. because I don't think there's anything that my mother hasn't told me. And I've asked some pretty tough questions, you know, all sorts of questions. How did she feel?
0: You know, I mean, I. Well, yeah, I mean, the shoe store is a classic case, I think, of. Things that we think we won't be able to cope with. We say to ourselves all the time, I couldn't live if that happened to me. I couldn't survive. I would just kill myself if that happened to me. I just couldn't. And then things happen and we cope and we cope and we
2: cope and we cope. How about your
0: mother as a young woman sorting dead children's
2: shoes? Well, she never, they never said they were dead children's shoes. Everybody knew, but nobody ever said because it was a job and you just went day to day. And there also, look, there's been a lot of books written, Bruno Bettelheim, Primo Levi, two people that come to mind, both of whom were well, Holocaust survivors, wrote a lot about it. Both of them academics, both of them in the end killed themselves. Yeah. Um, who wrote about the process. I mean, I think Bruno Levi's, Primo Levi's book, I think if, if I'm a Man, I think is the title, mm-hmm. of the book. Um, you know, talks about the process of how a person, you just, you, you kind of break down till you become that captured person um i mean there's a line in hold the picker where i say there was lots of things there were a lot of things about my parents i never understood but i could feel it you know around the, the the corners of my mouth and deep in the sockets of my eyes i felt like i had been captured that they were the products of being in captured and 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 they treated me the way their captors had treated them because that's all they knew you know so i think that you just you become a person in order to survive you you your brain begins to adapt and so you go in line you get your bowl of soup you you file though you know you you put you do those shoes you just do whatever i mean to me the bigger question was how did you hide and in, in, with your knees up to your chin yeah. for 13 months every day. Yeah. I just said, Mum, how did you do this? And it was profound. She just said, one day at a time. Yeah, wow. One day at a time. The
0: other thing that always strikes me as well is, you know now looking back it was 13 months, but every day she didn't know how much longer this was going to happen, how many more days. And yet she just chose to do today. And when they would be found. Yeah. And when they were found,
2: what would happen? And what would happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what the show is about, yeah. all the stuff that happened. But, but, but she's, you know, she's in minutes, that cupboard not knowing anything. Not any knowing. Not, not, and I said, but we, and she said, we t- you know, we did all kinds of things, they, but they smoked cigarettes. There was a, um, they had some newspapers and a broom and my father got a razor blade and they, he shaved tiny, tiny, tiny little pieces of wood from the end of the broom and then they wrapped them in newspaper and smoked them. <laughs> You know, they did, you know, he would get, there was a Polish guy who would put food out somewhere and my father would leave at night and get the food, you know, whether it was just, you know, <sighs> tomato or p- a potato, or whatever, you know. Mm. Um, but, you know, there are, there are so many stories that will never get heard. Absolutely. And, and amazing stories of, you know, of people giving their, really their last thimble full of water to somebody because they just felt that they needed to do that to, to a child because their life wasn't. Look, I... I guess what it's done for me is to never, ever underestimate a person's story, to never, mm. ever imagine when you see a cab driver in Melbourne or somebody, you know, refugee centres. You just don't underestimate this story. And often they don't, people don't talk about it, and particularly the children, you know. And, but when you say that your parents treated you the way they, the only way that they knew, the way they had been
0: treated… Well not all the what time. Does that mean? They weren't
2: well for, they were were they very very hard on you? I think they weren't so much hard. They were they were loving. Okay. But they were loving and they were generous. But I think they wanted me to be strong. Mm. And sometimes being strong meant that there were there were consequences. So if if you misbehaved in a normal I guess the most profound remnant is that if you misbehaved or you did something that wasn't right I mean, like I, I, well, for example, I I uh, stole, certainly before I went, when we were in Western suburbs, because I wasn't, they, they didn't know I was Jewish, they didn't matter, I was just a wog, and I wasn't really all that popular, um, because there weren't many wogs then, um, but so I tried to become popular by taking lollies to school from the milk bar, mm. and so I stole a bunch of lollies. More than once, but then because I'm such a bad thief, my father noticed that they are in my school bag one day and he actually stopped me and said, I will teach you never to steal again and never to lie. And he didn't hit me or anything like that. He never hit me, but he didn't talk to me for like a long time. I didn't exist for him. It was the mo- it was the cruelest punishment because I didn't exist. I ceased to exist. But for him, it was a betrayal. I had lied and I had stolen. And he wanted to teach me that you don't do that. You and don't you do stole that. stole mo- from him. And I stole from him. Mm. But more that I just stole. It was a lie. Mm. It wasn't about the lollies. It no. wasn't about it was about you did this. And it took me a long time to realise that betrayal was the greatest sin. Because if you stole food from another person in hiding yeah. or another person in the concentration camp, they would die. This wasn't just, just about being greedy. This was about life and death. So that conduct is irrational. It's cruel. It's it's not appropriate for a child. But, you know, these were people who had been only really young adults themselves when it happened. And so for, for me to have done that, it was... so So minor punishments, you know, for other children were always... To me, seemed they. they, For me, they would be profound. So, so I profound
0: psychological warfare. Yeah, well, you
2: don't. I see, he didn't talk to me. I didn't exist for months and months and months. And I knew, and I just did it for. I just, I knew what it was about. I knew we never talked about it for many years, but I knew. He just, I just. He said, "I will teach you never to steal again." That's all he said, and then. I didn't exist. No hello, no goodbye, no good night, no nothing, nothing. Nothing. Yes. Nothing. He looked right through me. Wow. And it was extremely painful. Extremely yeah. painful. I mean enough to send me into therapy years later. Yeah, you know? I did. But 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 not to love them any less. Not to love them any less. Because if I were to put myself in their shoes, who knows you know, what how I would respond? Who yeah. knows? It wasn't done out of a it wasn't done out of a premeditated cruelty. And it, it wasn't even done out of really teach me a lesson. It was done out of his own grief,
1: mm.
2: I think, and his own pain is the way I understand it. It's not normal. It's no. And I had my opportunity to say to him, "You know, look at this." I am like this because of you, you know. <laughs> and I endlessly tell my mother, I'm so screwed up. It's all your fault. I tell all the carers, "I fuck, she did this. She did this. I threatened to strangle her. Her neck is like this tiny little thing and I grab her and I say, I'm going to kill you. And she just says oh, she's a comedian. She thinks she's funny. She's still got the best sense of humour. You yeah. know what I mean? She's amazing. They just walked out of Poland and get on with it. Mm. You know, you want to – I don't even know why they had children. I said, what even made you have children? Why did you have children? But that was about the future. That was about Mm -hmm. hope. They still loved it. There were photographs of my parents straight after the war. My mother weighs about four and a half stone. I mean, she's tiny. And my father, you know, with a prosthesis and... They're both so elegant. My father's got pants tucked into long leather boots and a beautiful jacket. My mother's got a dress on with this great 1940s hairstyle. And I said, well, I wouldn't even want to – I wouldn't even brush my teeth again. I couldn't <laughs> care. Do you remember, why would you ever want to get dressed – you know, you after everything you'd seen and done, and yeah. been through, why did you want to even – what made you want to be happy again? Mm. And they just do. Just You just get through it and they do it. That, to me, is the thing that I find most inspiring. And you see these people, I'm sure they're well dressed. Yeah. I'm sure they conduct themselves. So. You know, where well, you know you have you know, you miss out on a gig, you go, Oh my life is <laughs> over. My life, nobody loves me. Do you know what I mean? So when yeah. you exponentially grow that to everything you know destroyed. Yeah. And all the people you love, no one in their family survived. No one. Yeah. No one. My mother saw her brother buried alive by Nazis because there'd been a German officer shot. They got uh, 12 Jewish boys at 13, bar mitzvah age, you know, when they have the rite of passage, and buried them. And she had to go home and tell her mother. And her mother just went insane after that. She just said, I don't care, whatever. My mother was already married, but her mother was still around. And See, she- now that's a reaction I understand.
0: <laughs> Finally, in this story, a reaction I understand. yes. She give
2: up? Yes. She just gave up and said, and within days they took her off to a concentration camp. My mother doesn't even know how, why, mm. but the fact that my mother had to go to her mother and tell her this is what's happened, and then there was another brother, and he died. My brothers, my father's two sisters, died of typhoid in the same bed as my mother in the in the ghetto. My mother said, "I'm just lucky I didn't get it." How does that happen? How does that happen? However,
0: do you reconcile that with with this life that we live? Um, You feel things very deeply, and I know you know that. Yes. And that's clear. Yes, I
2: do, just a little bit. And that's clear
0: clear to everyone who knows you. You feel love deeply. You feel empathy deeply. Mostly rage deeply. You feel (laughs) rage deeply. Mostly rage deeply. You feel things very deeply. Yes, I do.
2: Is this as a consequence? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I can't ignore... I can't walk away. You know, if I see someone lying on the road or someone's, you know, a junkie or whoever, I don't care. If there's anybody looking wounded on a street, on a bus stop or whatever, I stop. I've been told to piss off so many times. <laughs> I will not walk away because yeah. they could be injured. They could be hurt. I mean, they may just need a glass of water. Yeah. You know, and people always say to me, back off, you know, just back. But I can't. It's not. I, trust me, I'm not a good person. I am, can be a the, a cow, because it gets passed on too. Yeah, you know, I can be hideous if you hurt me. Hideous, but the but yes, the sensitivity comes from the feeling comes from having grown up with two people who were you know were and I also it's it's also a liability because I had to be very aware of their of how, what where they were. Yeah, you know, were they was it a bad day was it a good day or well, you know whatever so you become hypersensitive. It's not a good thing. I've been telling
0: Tommy Little this story. I was chatting with a friend once. You came into the conversation. And you were there for about 10 minutes and you said to this friend, you're adopted, yeah? And he is. He was. Yeah. yeah. And so you have, <laughs> you have. And Tommy said to me, is she adopted? Like I said, no, she just has this power. You become hypersensitive to people's you can,
2: feelings. Yes. You, do.
0: you do. And we weren't talking about anything related to anything, but
2: something in his way and his manner and his attitude. Well, now you know why I'm single, because that's not good for attracting a partner. <laughs>
0: They could hide nothing from they you. They could hide
2: nothing. No, they can hide nothing.
0: Um, Before I let you go, your mum, something I've heard of recently is an idea that Holocaust survivors don't die well because so much was put into survival yep. that the idea of dying at yep. 80 or 90 or 100 yep. feels like it. I can't give in. They to don't it. give in. I can't submit. No. Is she like that, your mum? She is like that.
2: She's indomitable. <laughs> how she's old is ni- she now? She's 90. To, she'll be 92 in um, August. Mm-hmm. She doesn't use a walking frame. She's frail. She's like lives on three morphine patches that are on her skin because she's got all her bones in her spine are shattered. Oh, my God. She's got one and a half block carotid arteries. They don't even know how the blood's going to her head. She's totally indomitable and still completely compass, you know, their whatever you know what I mean she's she's amazing they know they don't die well because they've lived a life to survive yeah but what happens is generally they 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 you know I mean, even the doctors say I don't know she's walking and talking and completely there in her brain you yeah. know but um so I'm hoping that there'll be some episode and that'll be it you know because one thing you don't want is for them to be incapacitated in any way because she wouldn't want that but that's very true mm. they just keep going and go, you know they you sort of think it doesn't matter. There might be only half of them is working, but they mm. sort of keep because it. Because, you know, their whole life is about survival. And the tenacity is amazing. And you will th- not kill me. You will not kill me. And do you think your life's been about that? And, and it feels maybe
0: this back to the moving to the country thing is maybe um, an opportunity to stop fighting.
2: Absolutely, no, For you? absolutely no that's a very keen observation. I've thought about that myself i've been i have I've been fighting and surviving all my life, and I keep saying I'm not in a war, so yeah, it's a way of going, you know what? Just take a breath there's not and and the other thing is about nature is you can't you, you know you're, I can't control it. I have to accept that you know if it's raining and there's storms and the trees are really bad, I can't go out that they're lovely affirmations of a of a world that it, it can't be controlled by anyone, good or bad, so yes. It it is a way of finding some kind of peace, I think. Otherwise I may stab someone. Because I, because I have no estrogen left. There is no more love left in that bottle. That's why it's better for everybody for I leave town, I
0: think. <laughs> You've been talking about estrogen since I knew you. Since I first met you, I think
2: our first probably conversation... because you met me in my mid-40s. It <laughs> was probably about estrogen. Yeah. Well, uh, when I had it, it was great, but painful. Now I don't have it. I miss it. But, uh, you know, so there's always... Estrogen is of any woman's life. You'll find out. You're too young. I on. will. Oh, I'm not anymore, babe. I'm not <laughs> as young as I was. Believe me. For me, you were always that girl. Always <laughs> that girl at the Prince Patrick.
0: Yeah. Well... It's true. You have always been the powerful, powerful, loving... Woman.
2: Well, thanks. Always. Very, very kind. Thank very you. Very
0: powerful and true. And you always know when you catch up with Burger. You're going to come away feeling strong and oh, but that's good. loved and love-bombed, baby, and really, you know, like you've had a really deep connection with somebody.
2: Well, thank you. It's not with everyone, but it's always okay. been between us. It's not with everyone, but it's always been between us. Yeah, thank you so much. You're welcome, darling. I hope that you can cut this up to get the things oh, that you Oh. Because you. you're, going, you're going to edit it up. Yes. Way. Okay. I'll, just I'll, it up. I'll trust you with that. Normally, I wouldn't. Trust? Trust issues. I don't do anything without being there.
0: I can trust You'll find more info about all of our guests at MichelleLorry.com, as well as a place to leave questions and feedback. There's also a link there to the website of Tenzen Choyil. He is the man behind the beautiful Tibetan music you've heard throughout the podcast. Thank you to Tim Mountford and Peter Lorry for editing help, but please know that the clunkiest edits are all mine. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Nitty Gritty Committee conversations about the guts and the glory of life. Please subscribe to get them all on iTunes and go ahead and leave us a nice review if you feel so inclined.